Charles Baudelaire is an extraordinary and very rare poet. Even 150 years after his early poems were written, those poems have a power to shock us, not just move us, but shock us with their directness and their transgression, their movement into areas of human life and feeling that we are uncomfortable speaking about, writing about, reading. To give you a sense of this shock, let me read his poem, La Charogne, translated as Carrion. All the poems I'll be reading are in a fine translation by Richard Howard. Uh, La Charogne means not just carrion, but a decaying carcass, and that, in fact, is what we'll encounter in this poem as the poet and his lover, his soulmate, on a walk, come across a decaying carcass. Remember, my soul, the thing we saw that lovely summer day? On a pile of stones, where the path turned off, the hideous carrion, legs in the air like a whore, displayed indifferent to the last, a belly slick with lethal sweat and swollen with foul gas. The sun lit up that rottenness as though to roast it through, restoring to nature a hundredfold what she had here made one. And heaven watched the splendid corpse like a flower open wide. You nearly fainted dead away at the perfume it gave off. Flies kept humming over the guts from which a gleaming clot of maggots poured to finish off what scraps of flesh remained. The tide of trembling vermin sank and then bubbled up afresh as if the carcass, drawing breath, by their lives lived again and made a curious music there, like running water or wind or the rattle of chaff the winnower loosens in his fan. Shapeless, nothing was left but a dream the artist had sketched in, forgotten, and only later on finished from memory. Behind the rocks, an anxious bitch eyed us reproachfully, waiting for the chance to resume her interrupted feast. Yet you will come to this offense, this horrible decay. You, the light of my life, the sun and moon and stars of my love. Yes, you will come to this, my queen, after the sacraments, when you rot underground among the bones already there. But as their kisses eat you up, my beauty, tell the worms I've kept the sacred essence, saved the form of my rotted loves. It is in its confrontation with a corpse, a truly stunning and shocking poem. The corpse decays in front of us. Maggots not only feed on it, but as they move, the corpse seems alive with their movement. The unity of the body, we each have a body that is separate from other bodies, that unity, as the 
the flies and as the maggots feed on it, that unity restores to nature a hundredfold what she had here made one. The unity of the body and of the self is violated irremediably. What has fallen apart here, disintegrated, can never be put back together. This is human mortality faced directly. We are rotting meat, filthy rotting meat, legs in the air like a whore. The French is uh, legs in the air like a, a woman lubricated for sex. In this poem, the poet tries to make some sense of what he sees, but as a counterpoint to that, there is the dog, the bitch. Behind the rocks, an anxious bitch eyed us reproachfully, waiting for the chance to resume her interrupted feast. The dog only sees decaying flesh as a meal in the same way that the vermin, the maggots, see that flesh. And yet this poem, for all its surprise and all its shock, for all its sense of violating all the conventions, is in another way not so very different from one of Shakespeare's sonnets. A large number of Shakespeare's sonnets say, essentially, you will decay, your body will die, our love will come to an end, but love me, love me especially, because I, the artist, can capture you, can capture your beauty outside of time. Art lives even as the body dies. And that is what Carrion, Baudelaire's poem, says. Not only does it horrify with its sense that a poem might be about a corpse encountered on a country walk, but it horrifies doubly by saying, this is you, this is your double, my love. Yet you will come to this offense, this horrible decay, you the light of my life, the sun and moon and stars of my love. Yes, you will come to this, my queen, when you rot underground among the bones already there. But, the final stanza begins, but as their kisses eat you up. Stunning image. The worms kiss the body and absorb it into themselves. But as their kisses eat you up, my beauty, tell the worms, I've kept the sacred essence, saved the form of my rotted loves. Who is this Charles Baudelaire? How did he come to write poems like this? He was born early in the 19th century in 1819. He was educated in Lyon in France. Uh, his stepfather sent him on a sea voyage to straighten him out. And in 1842, he returned to the city of his birth, to Paris, where he met a woman who was to occupy his life for most of his years, Jean Duval an extraordinarily beautiful mulatto actress, part black, part white, who was performing in a Paris theater. A year later, he began writing the poems that would become his 
book of poetry, Fleur de Mal, The Flowers of Evil. And he would continue writing those poems for another 14 years until in 1857, although some had been published separately or in a small version of Fleur de Mal. In 1857, his volume was published in a small edition. Baudelaire struggled with poverty and with syphilis. His last years were very difficult, afflicted with aphasia, one of the results of secondary syphilis. He was mute and largely paralyzed, and he died at the age of 46 in 1867. Baudelaire's poetry is preeminently the poetry of modern life. He wrote an essay about a painter contemporary of his, Constantine Gies, called The Painter of Modern Life. Baudelaire is the poet of modern life, both its emotions and its locus. That is, modern life takes place in the city. More than any poet who preceded him, and as a trailblazer for those who followed, Baudelaire is the poet of city life. The Seven Old Men tells a sort of narrative. The poet goes out into the city. The poem begins, swarming city, city gorged with dreams, where ghosts by day accost the passerby. So the poet Baudelaire goes out into the city full of things, ordinarily full of people, full of the dreams of people. People go to the city because of their dreams, and in the feverish life of the city, people have unusual numbers of dreams. It's filled with secrets. I think they're connected to the dreams. He goes out into the city between the blocks of houses on either side of the street. They look like docks that line a river, and the river is the street here filled not just with the rain of this rainy day, but with a yellow fog. And as he goes through the streets, he's trying to find what he calls a stern resolve and arguments to steal my flagging soul. So he's looking for something. And in a very perverse answer to his search, something appears. Not stern resolve, but out of the fog, all of a sudden he sees in front of him, an old man dressed in yellow rags. His first impulse is to be generous, but, he says, but then I saw the malice in his eyes. This old man is malicious, stiff, not bent but broken. He seems to care about nothing. His steps are like uh, as if he were crushing dead men's bones. Baudelaire summarizes his attitude as hostile rather than indifferent. He's terrified by this image of what comes out of the city. And then to underline the terror, another figure appears looking just like the first. He's briefly described. And then Baudelaire tells us he was almost beyond terror because he saw five more figures appear looking like that first old broken man with malicious eyes 
stiff beard, broken backbone. He's so terrified by dread that he turns around, turns his back on the whole damn parade, as he says, and staggers to his house. As he staggers home, he uses the words indignant as a drunk who sees the world double. In French, the word is double, same, same word. The world is doubled. Not only is there an old man doubled and redoubled to the power of seven, but these old men, hostile, malicious, indifferent, broken, seem to be doubles of himself. And so at the end of the poem, he vainly seeks for reason to take the helm, for a reason to reassert itself. Uh, but instead, he feels himself tossed in a storm to be an old ship without a mast or sail dancing across a black and shoreless sea. Here then is seven old men this description of what comes up out of the fog of the city to Baudelaire. Swarming city, city gorged with dreams where ghosts by day accost the passerby, where secrets run in these defiled canals that, like blood that gushes through a giant's veins. One morning, when the rain in these mean streets made houses grimmer than the docks that line the two banks of the filthy river, and the yellow fog engulfed the space between, a stage effect to match the actor's mood, I roamed as if in search of stern resolve and arguments to flag my to, to and arguments to steal my flagging soul through back streets shaken by each heavy van, and out of nowhere came a wretch in rags, the very yellow color of the dripping sky. Surely this deserved some charity. But then I saw the malice in his eyes and seemed to feel the cold because of them, as if their pupils had been soaked in bile. His beard stuck out as stiff as any sword. Judas must have had a beard like that. He wasn't bent, he was broken, and his spine formed so sharp an angle with his legs that his stick, as if to add a finishing touch, gave him the carriage and the clumsy gait of some lame animal or a three-legged Jew. He pounded past in the mud and slush, as if his shabby boots were crushing dead men's bones, hostile rather than indifferent. Then from the same hell came another, the same eyes and beard and backbone, stick and rags, nothing distinguished these centenarian twins clumping identically toward an unknown goal. Was it some vile conspiracy or just coincidence that made a fool of me? To the seventh power I counted every one. This sinister ancient reproduced itself. Doubtless to you my dread seems ludicrous, unless a brotherly shudder lets you see, for all their imminent decrepitude, 
these seven monsters had eternal life. I doubt if I could have survived an eighth such apparition, father and son of himself, inexorable phoenix, loathsome avatar. I turned my back on the whole damn parade, indignant as a drunk who seeks sees the world double. I staggered home and locked my door, scared and sick at heart and scandalized that so much mystery could be absurd. Vainly my reason sought to take the helm. The gale made light of purpose, and my soul went dancing on an old and mastless scow dancing across a black and shoreless sea. That's Baudelaire, the city poet, encountering the city and its more loathsome and horrifying accents aspects. Baudelaire is a challenging and difficult poet. He's a poet who always shocks me. I'm never sure if I like encountering what he says. But Baudelaire was smart enough to know that that would be the reader's response. And so the introductory poem to Les Fleurs du Mal, The Flowers of Evil, is called To the Reader. It's a poem about illicit desires, about how illicit desires indicate that we all have evil inside us, that the evil manifests itself in what I would call willlessness. He says the precious metal of our will is leached out by the cunning alchemist Satan. So we no longer have the capacity to say no to certain things that rise in us. The devil's hand, he tells us, directs our every move. The things we loathe become the things we love. Uh, drunkenness, sexual license, giving way to our own basest instincts. And there's a remarkable simile, like a poor profligate, profligate is someone who seeks any kind of pleasure, like a poor profligate who sucks and bites the withered breast of some ancient aged whore, someone who takes whatever he can get, even if it's small and unsatisfying. We snatch in passing at clandestine joys, the poem continues, and squeeze the oldest orange harder yet. Not much juice there, but we squeeze and we try, wriggling in our brains like a million worms. Our brains are teeming with things that are feeding on, on the, in the darkness, wriggling in our brains like a million worms. A demon demos holds its revels there, a, a people of the devil parties. And when we breathe the lethe in our lungs, lethe in the French is l'amour, it's the death. It's, it, it, the translation tries to suggest the forgetfulness that comes with death, the ending of things, will, is breathed into our lungs and, and trickles sighing on its secret course. It, it, like oxygen, the longing for death seeps through our veins. But we don't have courage, this poem says, 
if we had courage, if our souls had enterprise, which they lack, our souls lack enterprise, we would go farther yet, commit rape and arson, turn to poison and the knife. We are living bestial lives among the scorpions and the hounds, the jackals, apes and vultures, snakes and wolves. There is one monster that is the largest in all the squalid zoo of vices. So we, we, we each live in and are a zoo of evils and evil appetites. In all the squalid zoo of vices, one is even uglier and fouler than the rest. Although the least flamboyant of the lot, this beast, this ugliest of monsters, would gladly undermine the earth and swallow all creation in a yawn. Creation, the joy of coming into being, can all be swallowed up by a yawn of, and he says in the last stanza, say, lan we, it's boredom. I speak of boredom, which with ready tears dreams of hangings as it puffs its pipe. Those tears are the sentimental tears that we weep. Well, what we dream of is hangings, extreme spectacles, shocking events, horror, sadism, which with ready tears dreams of hangings as it puffs its hookah. Hookah is a pipe used for smoking opium or hashish. So we lounge around and smoke opium in our boredom, dream of hangings, cry sentimental tears. And then the final two lines among the most famous in all of French poetry, which I will leave till the end. They shock me every time I read the poem, and I hope that they will shock you when they come. To the reader, stupidity, delusion, selfishness, and lust torment our bodies and possess our minds. And we sustain our affable remorse the way a beggar nourishes his lice. Our sins are stubborn, our contrition lame. We want our scruples to be worth our while. How cheerfully we crawl back to the mire. A few cheap tears will wash our stains away. Satan Trismegistus subtly rocks our ravished spirits on his wicked bed until the precious metal of our will is leached out by this cunning alchemist. The devil's hand directs our every move. The things we loathed become the things we love. Day by day we drop through stinking shades quite undeterred on our descent to hell. Like a poor profligate who sucks and bites the withered breast of some aging whore. We snatch in passing at clandestine joys and squeeze the oldest orange harder yet. Wriggling in our brains like a million worms, a demon demos holds its revels there, and when we breathe the lethe in our lungs trickles sighing on its secret course. If rape and arson, poison, and the knife have not yet stitched, stitched their ludicrous designs unto the banal buckram of our fates. It is because our souls lack enterprise. But here, among the scorpions and the hounds, the jackals, 
apes and vultures, snakes and wolves, monsters that howl and growl and squeal and crawl in all the squalid zoo of vices. One is even uglier and fouler than the rest, although the least flamboyant of the lot. This beast would gladly undermine the earth and swallow all creation in a yawn. I speak of boredom, which with ready tears dreams of hangings as it puffs its pipe. Reader, you know this squeamish monster well, hypocrite reader, my alias, my twin. You know this evil, this delicate monster reader, that last line reads. Hypocrite reader, hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frere, hypocrite, hypocrite reader, my double, my brother. What Baudelaire tells us at the end here is that although he lives in hell, although he gives way to his appetites, although he is taken up by his evil impulses, although he longs for death, he's filled with cowardice, although he lives a life of boredom which swallows all creation in a yawn. We, as his readers, should not feel apart and superior what he feels we feel. Reader, you know this squeamish monster well, Hypocrite reader, my double, my brother. A series of four poems in Le Fleur de Mal is called Spleen, Spleen 1, 2, 3, and 4, because I have always found these extremely um, moving is the wrong word. These poems speak to me of things that are both alien and close. They speak of difficult things, things that are not always rendered in poetry. I'd like to look at these three poems. This is Spleen too. It begins souvenir. Uh, the French word souvenir means both souvenirs, things that are from out of the past, but also memories. Uh, and the first couplet of the poem is souvenirs, more than if I had lived a thousand years. That is, he has so many memories, it is as if, as if he had 15 lifetimes of them. It continues with a, one of these remarkable images that Baudelaire has. Uh, an external image, but about an internal state. No chest of drawers crammed with documents, love letters, wedding invitations, wills, a lock of someone's hair rolled up in a deed, hides so many secrets as my brain. I think it's a comparison that we can all identify with. There are moments when our Brains are teeming. In, in the prior poem to the reader, we had a, a brain filled with a million worms. Here, our brains, and it does feel like that sometimes, we are so overwhelmed by the 
garbage inside our heads by the things that are remainders of the past and and we can't throw out that it is like an overstuffed chest of drawers with all sorts of things documents facts love letters compassions and wedding invitations social relations wills things that have to do with death a lock of someone's hair personal intimate connection to something physical and past rolled up in a deed something very legal the poem moves from this image of the brain as a chest of drawers overstuffed with all the kind of garbage we can't throw out to an image of a graveyard or a catacomb the brain holds more corpses we learn in the poem than a potter's field the potter's field is a graveyard for paupers all sorts of life from the past is buried dead perhaps rotting almost forgotten in our brain and he himself feels like a graveyard i am a graveyard that abhors that the moon abhors even the moon hates me where long worms like regrets come out to feed most ravenously on my dearest dead not only are the dead there but his regrets about the past are like worms feeding on the dead and then he comes with a third metaphor first a chest of drawers with documents and all sorts of junk in it then a graveyard with corpses from the past which regret feeds on as words worms feed on corpses then he says i'm i'm like an old bedroom where racks of gowns perfumed by withered roses rot and i always think of miss havisham and great expectations by dickens where time is stopped in her wedding chamber and her wedding dress and wedding cake rot she jilted at the altar all there is in this room are faint drawings faint pastels and pale boucher boucher was a 18th century painter who painted uh, women young women in in skirts with lots of petticoats swinging on swings he's decorative not terribly moving and he painted in pale colors kind of remnant of the past here and they inhale the scent of long unstoppered flasks the perfume is all but gone only traces remain decayed fragrances nothing he tells us is slower than the limping days when under the heavy weather of the years boredom that's his subject again ennui boredom the fruit of glum indifference boredom is what comes when we don't care anymore gains the dimension of eternity boredom in the last poem swallowed up all creation here boredom stretches out it seems to be as long as forever now spleen the title of this and the other poems spleen is uh, an old word it was one of the four humors when psychology looked at human beings as being dominated by one of four different tendencies and spleen is the tendency to melancholy or what we might now call depression spleen has taken on taken on 
over the years. Another meaning, uh, spleen also means uh, malice, spite, bad temper. So these spleen poems are about a depression, a despair, but they have um, a, a sense of, of malice or, or spitefulness as well. To return to the poem, it's boredom, the fruit of glum indifference, gains the dimension of eternity. And then he addresses his his self, his body, his mortal clay. Hereafter, mortal clay, you are no more than a rock encircled by a nameless dread. You are, in this final image, alone, encircled by dread. You are like, he says, an ancient sphinx. You remember the sphinx, half man, half beast? An ancient sphinx omitted from the map sphinx that is lost, that is truly alone in the universe, forgotten by the world, and whose fierce moods sing only to the rays of setting suns. No one to hear, no one to respond, and the singing is only to a sun of endings. So in this poem, he moves from being overwhelmed by mental debris to being stuck in the grave, living a life that is slow and bored and uncaring, and finally overcome by kind of almost unimaginable aloneness. Here then is Spleen Two by Charles Baudelaire. Souvenirs, more than if I had lived a thousand years. No chest of drawers crammed with documents, love letters, wedding invitations, wills, a lock of someone's hair rolled up in a deed, hides so many secrets as my brain. This branching catacomb, this pyramid contains more corpses than the potter's field. I am a graveyard that the moon abhors where long worms like regrets come out to feed most ravenously on my dearest dead. I am an old boudoir where a rack of gowns perfumed by withered roses rots to dust, where only faint pastels and pale boucher inhale the scent of long unstoppered flasks. Nothing is slower than the limping days when under the heavy weather of the years boredom the fruit of glum indifference gains the dimension of eternity hereafter mortal clay you are no more than a rock encircled by a nameless dread an ancient sphinx omitted from the map forgotten by the world and whose fierce moods sing only to the rays of setting suns. Here is Spleen Three, and although all of these poems are about depression, and depression with a kind of edge to it, they all explore different feelings to that depression or despair 
or anguish. In this one, what is explored is a kind of terminal ennui, the French word for boredom. The last poem, Spleen 2, ended up with boredom. This begins with a boredom that leads to a lethargy, an inability to move or act or do anything, even to feel good. You remember the willlessness of that poem to the reader. And the boredom and lethargy finally culminate not in the loneliness of the last poem or the aloneness, but in a despair that comes from there being no way out, no end to, no exit from spleen and melancholy. This poem, uh, like the encounter with the seven old men, takes place in a rainy city. Well, not a city, but in a rainy country. And the next poem, Spleen 4, also will be a rainy poem. Uh, the sodden outdoors, the rain, the heavy press of clouds, the dampness, the inability to be comfortable seems not only appropriate to, but an external mirror of Baudelaire's internal moods and emotions. The poem begins, I'm like the king of a rainy country. And then the poem consists of this young king described, the king obviously being like Baudelaire. The young king is helpless. He's falling apart. In line two, he's decrepit. He has no fun. Nothing distracts him. In fact, remarkable image. Nothing distracts him, neither hawk nor hound. He doesn't go doing falconry or hunting with his dogs. They can't distract him from his melancholy, nor subjects starving at the palace gate. What that ambiguous line means is either way, it's, it's pretty shocking. Nothing distracts him, not the sufferings of his people, not even the interest. Perhaps he doesn't relate to them uh, in terms of compassion, but not even the interest in what's happening. Nothing distracts him. Why, his favorite jester, his, who tells him dirty jokes, they fall flat. And then the line is, the royal invalid is not amused. And the ladies in waiting, who are there to make the court look lively and beautiful, and who are to bring beauty into his life and more, because this is a corrupt king kingdom, and ladies in waiting for a princely nod no longer dress indecently enough to win a smile from this young skeleton. Those ladies are available to the king if he desires, but even youthful, sensuous flesh has no appeal. And so the bed of state becomes a stately tomb. Even his smartest scientist, his alchemist, who's also a doctor, the alchemist who 
bruise him gold, who can turn lead into gold, cannot transform his mood. The alchemist who brews him gold has failed to purge the impure substance from his soul. And then the most drastic remedy, and baths of blood, Rome's legacy recalled by certain barons in their failing days, that emperors would have baths of bl blood, the, the blood of other human beings might somehow revivify and nourish them, that, that modern nobles have tried the same thing, even that, even the blood of others cannot revivify him. They are useless to revive this sickly flesh through which no blood seeps, no blood but brackish lethe seeps. Lethe is, as we saw before, the river of forgetfulness. It is death itself. The waters of death circulate through him, and nothing can end his despair. There is no exit. Here, then, is Spleen 3. I'm like the king of a rainy country, rich but helpless, decrepit, though still a young man who scorns his fawning tutors, wastes his time on dogs and other animals, and has no fun. Nothing distracts him, neither hawk nor hound nor subject starving at the palace gate. His favorite fool's obscenities fall flat, the royal invalid is not amused, and ladies in waiting for a princely nod no longer dress indecently enough to win a smile from this young skeleton. The bed of state becomes a stately tomb. The alchemist who brews him gold has failed to purge the impure substance from his soul, and baths of blood, Rome's legacy recalled by certain barons in their failing days, are useless to revive this sickly flesh, through which no blood but brackish lethe seeps. I am shocked often by Baudelaire's poems, as I said. I'm shocked in this, and ladies in waiting for a princely nod no longer dress indecently enough to win a smile from this young skeleton. That image of noble women serving the king's pleasure, even they, they no longer bother to let the shoulder strap down and show a portion of shoulder. Uh, they no longer uh, occasionally pull up their skirts and let him see their leg. They no longer reveal that they themselves are available to meet his princely needs. Even that kind of decadence, the abasement of young women to the needs of power, even that cannot stimulate him, make him feel that life is worth living, rouse him from his lethargy. This is a poem about lethargy. The final poem, Spleen 4 in this series, is a poem about entrapment. The first line reads, when skies are low and heavy as a lid. So the sky presses down. It's going to be uh, a very gray, a dark gray day. The, 
the daylight is going to be even darker than night, even dingier than the dark. And that first line in which the skies are not only low and dingy, but when the skies press down on him, down like a lid on a pot, become in the second stanza, the earth becomes a trickling dungeon. It's raining and it's damp and it's wet. Where trust, belief in other people or the possibility of a future, where trust, like a bat, keeps lunging through the air. And this is a bat, unlike the bats we see that fly around in, in spaces and through the use of their kind of sonar, avoid crashing into trees, even though it's dark, or walls. This is a bat that is somehow, its brain is disturbed. Trust like a bat keeps lunging through the air, beating tentative wings along the walls and bumping its head against the rotten beams. Hope here is trapped in inside this room. It's it's kind of like a basement. It's a dungeon and it's and and the beams are rotting and the rain that is falling in stanza three, the rain falls straight from unrelenting clouds. Those raindrops forge the bars of some enormous jail. So the rain coming down seems like bars of a prison. Again, we have this sense of entrapment. And silent hordes of obscene spiders spin their webs across the basement of our brains. Again, we're down deep in the building. And spiders, again, we have this image that we've had twice before of, the, of a brain filled up. And here with spiders' webs, that the brain is not used or the webs would have been disturbed and and the spiders are obscene filling our brain with their the spinning see excrement that catches things and makes this dungeon basement inner brain seem not just entrapping but awful and then we get to the fourth stanza, when the images of atmosphere, of sky and rain, of, of sight and feeling, turn to auditory, auditory images. Then all at once the raging bells break loose. Ding. Then all at once the raging bells break loose, hurling to heaven their awful caterwaul like homeless ghosts with no one left to haunt, whimpering their endless grievances. I'd like to stop this poem here for a second and turn to another poem written at almost the same time, but half a world away. This is a poem by Emily Dickinson. She lived in a small town, not in a big city. She lived on the edge of civilization in a rural, almost frontier North America, while Baudelaire lived in Paris, which in the famous uh, phrase of the critic Walter Benjamin, Paris was the capital of the 19th century. She lived an incredibly private life, whereas he moved through the teeming 
streets of the cities. And yet she too has moods not distant from Spleen 4. I was struck by the similarity between these two poems by the emergence of sound. Emily Dickinson's poem is called I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. And in the first three stanzas, the funeral outside mourners, the mourners marching in, treading the service with maybe its drumbeat, uh, the moving of the coffin to out of the church and toward the graveyard. Uh, all of those are rendered as symbols of her inner state, that is the external becomes a mirror of the internal, exactly as in Baudelaire, symbolic as in Baudelaire. And then in the fifth stanza of what I will read, excuse me, it's the fourth stanza, all of a sudden the bells ring out, almost exactly as in Baudelaire. And the feeling is the same as in Baudelaire, those bells assault her as they assaulted him as all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear. So the heavens seem to be ringing into existence just to take things in like an ear. And I in silence, some strange race wrecked solitary here. She is wrecked by the sound as fully as silence is wrecked by the caterwauling of the bells. And in the end of her poem, she can bear it no longer. And then a plank in reason broke the image here is a being at the cemetery with the coffin being lowered into the grave and then a plank in reason broke and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. Here's the poem I Felt a Funeral in My Brain by Emily Dickinson written in 1861 as far as we can determine. I felt a funeral in my brain and mourners to and fro kept treading treading till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service like a drum kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift the box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll as all the heavens were a bell and being, but in ear and eye and silence some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. To return to Baudelaire, he has that same image of the assault of sound. Then all at once the raging bells break loose, hurling to heaven their awful caterwaul, like homeless ghosts with no one left to haunt, whimpering their endless grievances. And then his final stanza, in which, again, very similar to Dickinson or she to him, the imagery is that of funerals. The funerals here are internal, as with Dickinson. I wrote, I felt a funeral in my brain. He says, and giant hearses without dirge or drums parade at half step in my soul where hope defeated weeps and the oppressor anguish.
plants his black flag on my assenting skull. These to me are among the best lines of the 19th century. These hearses moving slowly without dirge or drums to a slow rhythm, almost like his heart beating inside him as he is entrapped in this sodden prison-like world. That entrapment and imprisonment, that heaviness of atmosphere leads to thoughts of death and to a sense that he has been defeated. Hope defeated weeps and the oppressor dread plants his black flag on my assenting skull. Uh, in French, and I'll read the last stanza in French, it's on my uh, bent or inclined neck. It's like a, like Norquay and Hillary on top of Everest for the first time planted their flag. It's like uh, a, a conqueror of a new territory plants a flag here, dread or anguish plants not the flag of a country, but the flag of nihilism, the black flag, the flag of ultimate despair on his skull bent to receive it. In French, and my French is not wonderful to listen to, I think the rhythm of this stanza sounds like a funeral marching slowly without drums and without uh, rhythmic uh, percussion instruments. A de long corbiar sans tambour ni musique défile lentement dans mon âme. L'espoir vaincu pleure et l'angoisse atroce, despotique sur mon crâne incliné plante son drapeau noir. Here then is Spleen for by Charles Baudelaire. When skies are low and heavy as a lid over the mind tormented by disgust, and hidden in the gloom the sun pours down on us a daylight dingier than the dark, when earth becomes a trickling dungeon where trust like a bat keeps lunging through the air, beating tentative wings along the walls and bumping its head against the rotten beams, when rain falls straight from unrelenting clouds forging the bars of some enormous jail and silent hordes of obscene spiders spin their webs across the basements of our brains. Then all at once the raging bells break loose, hurling to heaven their awful caterwaul, like homeless ghosts with no one left to haunt, whimpering their endless grievances. And giant hearses, without dirge or drums, parade at half-step in my soul, where hope defeated weeps, and the oppressor dread plants his black flag on my assenting skull. Always in Baudelaire, there are elements of shock. Perhaps the shock is linked to that theme of 
ennui or boredom, perhaps only shock can bring us out of the boredom which seems to swallow existence in a yawn. Perhaps that shock is also born of city life in one which one has not a routine daily existence as we think of it in peasant life where people move to the rhythms of the sun and their tasks. But in city life, one encounters looming up before one again and again new, remarkable, horrifying things as when Baudelaire is walking through the rainy, foggy city, he encounters those seven old men. So he's a poet of shock and a poet of the city. He is, I think, preeminently a poet of modern emotion. His poems, I think, for the most part, begin in boredom. He seeks solace or comfort from appetite and from extreme experience. One of the reasons for the shocking nature of his poems. The appetites we have encountered, the extreme experiences we have encountered in just these five poems are remarkable. Opium, whores, hangings, corpses, prisons, bought young noble women, baths of blood. But despite his pursuit of appetite, despite his embrace of extreme experiences, we realize, especially as we look at these spleen poems, that Baudelaire is unsatisfied and profoundly despairing. That lack of satisfaction, that sense of despair is one of the characteristics of modern life. It's certainly not the only characteristic, but in that area of despair, of the dissatisfactions of modern life, no one has been as profound an explorer as Baudelaire, unless perhaps it be Emily Dickinson. Among Baudelaire's great achievements is even though he shocks us to draw us in, to make us examine our own souls. Boo, hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frere, you hypocrite reader, my double, my twin. And yet there is something else in Baudelaire his fleur de mal is divided into two parts, spleen and ideal. Spleen, or melancholy despair, spite, and the ideal. Always in his poems, Baudelaire reaches for something else. He is never satisfied with ennui or boredom. He is never content with his entrapment. He always reaches out, and if we can use the imagery of spleen four, he seeks to escape the prison, the dungeon, the enormous jail in which modern life has trapped him. And that sort of reaching out for an existence which is intimated by beauty, if I can go back to that first poem about the carrion, the corpse, he does say to his lover, yet you will come to this offense, this 
horrible decay. You, the light of my life, the sun and moon and stars of my love. Yes, you will come to this, my queen. That's not just love. That's an admiration for beauty that makes her his light, his sun, his moon, his stars, his queen. And that pursuit of beauty, which is there in all his lines, at no translation can do justice to the music of Baudelaire's language, to the supple beauties of his rhythms. That beauty which is in his poems as well as in life. And the art which he makes and to which he is attracted give promise that maybe there is something beyond and above a world of spleen, a world of entrapment, a world in which we are shocked by our encounters with the ugliness and the perversity of everyday life. And so we leave Charles Baudelaire, a poet with an inordinate capacity to shock us, but also a poet who opens up new vistas, new possibilities for both poetry and for our feeling about modern life.